Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. We are not in the studio, we're not in the office, we're in the International Anthony Burgess Centre, that's the name, name of it, on Cambridge Street. And we're about to have our amazing Mill Members Club featuring Sophie Atkinson, Senior Mill Editor. Woo! She's right here. Hello, Sophie. Hi, so excited to be here. Too close to the mic. Um, featuring me interviewing Anne Worthington, who's an amazing photographer. Um, tonight is all about Manchester and how we've got to where we are now. The development, the people behind it, who, who sparked the Manchester Renaissance. But Molly, you're with us here as well. Um, you've been working on what is going to be an amazing weekend read for us this week. We're not going to do our usual roundup of stories on this podcast. We're just going to give you this conversation that Sophie's about to have with Dave. But tell us about the story you've been working on this week that people are going to be reading tomorrow. Yeah, so to take you inside the mill office, me and Jack Tilhanty have been reporting a story that's been a few months in the making now, and that's about underpayment and late payment in Manchester's hospitality sector. Um, Manchester's hospitality sector, obviously a huge, fast-growing industry in Manchester. It's a topic we've returned to a couple of times. Regular readers will know we've done a bit on this before and feel it's really important because of how much of a massive workforce it is in Manchester, and especially because it's made up of primarily young people, maybe slightly more naive or slightly more financially precarious it feels really important to tell those stories about how they're treated perfect so we're going to be able to read that on the mail tomorrow we're not going to do a usual roundup but if you want some real political goss check out our newsletter from thursday mm -hmm. if you want an amazing historical piece about manchester and the, the early trappings of manchester go on our edition from tuesday Absolutely. and if you're looking for an investigation into frankly one of the most sort of culturally significant industries in Manchester and the way it treats some of some of the, you know these businesses mm. treat young people check out your story with Jack tomorrow Absolutely. now Soph you're about to get on stage with Dave Scott how are you feeling to be honest I've barely slept this week <laughs> I'm incredibly anxious I'm quite if you if you're listening to the, this podcast and you know me um, you'll know I am quite an anxious person <laughs> well imagine that times 10 <laughs> insomnia o'clock but I'm excited I'm excited to interview this man about this incredible book and have a full night's sleep afterwards Sophie is looking glamorous but she's also sweating profusely and so now we're gonna cut this and we're gonna take you on stage with Sophie Atkinson and Dave Scott author of Mancunians Hi everyone, I'm so nervous. I've been having nightmares I'm not that about this night all week. <laughs> um, David, I, can you, first of all, can you start by pouring me some water? Yes, of and course. And then I'm gonna make a confession to the audience. Um, so my confession is that when Yoshi asked me to read this book, I was filled with dread because, I don't know if you've noticed, but the title is Mancunians. And as probably a lot of you know, there are only two subjects for a book about Manchester. <laughs> One, the Industrial Revolution. Two, the Hacienda. <laughs> to my joy, I discovered that this book was not about either. Yes, there's maybe two pages about the Hacienda, but that's all right. And even better than that, it was just a joyful read. I just um, inhaled this book in a single sitting um, and one of the things I loved about it was that it wasn't just David's story. It was constructed from this chorus of voices and it felt like this really creative endeavor to represent a city. David, 
Hello. Hello. <laughs> Um, David, how did you come to write this this book? Uh, it happened during the pandemic. So I was on another podcast. I don't know if I've listened to Excess Manchester. Clint Boone is a DJ on there. Uh, he interviewed me for a podcast and we were talking about my experiences growing up in Manchester. And I was talking a lot about stuff that doesn't really get discussed in you know media like you were saying it's like the Hacienda, Oasis, Manchester and stuff. All, all vital parts of our history but it just gets told time and time again. And then Manchester University Press got in touch with me and said, um, we've heard you talking about this, would you be interested in writing a book? And I'd like to try to play it a little bit cool. <laughs> Left it 10 seconds, yes, I'd like to write that. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, it's back and forth. And then the more we sort of explored the time that I grew up, so I left school in 1997 to about 2002 when the Anne's wonderful pictures. Can we have a round of applause for Anne, please, as well? <laughs> Thank you so much for letting me use that photograph. Um, yeah, so I joined that age it had never been, never been discussed, and I couldn't believe it. The publishers couldn't believe it, and we literally looked through everything that had been written about Manchester, and nobody had touched on this period. And then when you look at everything that happened around then, I mean, you look at the sporting successes of Manchester United, but also the decline of Manchester City, great stories that, you know, Man Manchester City in particular not really spoke about, the music, Mercury Prize award-winning bands, if you look at uh, the other types of music, the bomb that went off and the regeneration project after that. And can I just say as well, when we discuss regeneration, it's only regeneration if the people that are living in the houses are allowed to stay in them. Otherwise, it's rep repossession. So that really, when we're talking about like pissing, I was getting pissed off, not in a horrible way towards you, but I had to just clear that. But yeah, so uh, we were picking at this and it felt like we'd really struck gold. Um, and then I was like, yeah, man, I'm, let's write this book. <laughs> Amazing. And so one thing I really loved about the book was that it felt like it had this red thread running through it of you setting the record straight on the various creation myths behind contemporary Manchester. So in the book, you explode the popular notion that the IRA bomb was a catalyst for Manchester's transformation around the turn of the century. So can you tell the people who haven't read the book yet, um, if the bomb wasn't the catalyst, what, according to you, was? Well, it's not according to me. It's according to the, the, the key decision makers in the city at the time, like Bernstein and co. And it was like the, it was already on a sort of trajectory. Uh, I think we were looking at the, the failed Olympic bids previously before the Commonwealth Games when we got them. We were already sort of trying to change the city and make it on a par, not with rival cities of in England, but across Europe. They were always already looking at the places like Barcelona and Paris and a lot of the Olympic bids, which I found quite cunning. I, I, quite, I quite like a, a cheeky way of um, trying to get your name in a poster as an artist. I'm, I'm well aware about how much you have to do that. But uh, yeah, so Manchester didn't think that they had a chance at getting the Olympic bid, but they put the, the getting the Olympics with their bid. But if they thought if we can get in the bidding process, all of a sudden we're going to get this advertising where you're going to see Barcelona, Paris, and then Manchester. And then that's like free advertising, really. And, like, and people around the world are going like, who's Manchester? And, you know, and they started for it from way back then. Um, but the, the IRA bomb, and a lot of people get really angry because they see this sort of creation story that they were somehow should be thankful to the IRA for what they did to Manchester City Centre, which we should not. Uh, but they sort of sped up the process and um, basically did, they, they decimated a lot of uh, a part of Manchester. I mean, it was, it was the worst part of Manchester City Centre. I mean, a lot of it needed changing, except for Piccadilly Gardens. I wish that was like how it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and, and then it sort of put it into a different gear, really, and then it just like fast forward, and then during that sort of time, from a young lad who was growing up in Longside Levens room, you could get the 192 bus in and out of town, and it just felt like every day there was something else going up, and it was just, you think it's bad now trying to drive around Manchester City Centre with a scaffold, it was terrible back then. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And so you talk a little bit about the final um, years of the Hacienda. Um, I believe you left school the year that it closed. Um, and then there's, and in contrast to that sort of decline, you talk about the origin story of the night and day, which I found really interesting because as a teenager, um, I used to go there, but I didn't know, I don't know if you guys know, um, that the night and day started life as on the surface, just a chippy, but they sort of illicitly sold booze. <laughs> I love it. It's one, it's one of my favorite stories. That and I, Just to talk about the story before I get into that, is yeah. that for me, it was a discovery because I was unaware of that. It's only when people were starting opening up about the, them size. But, but yeah, the, the night and day cafe on um, Oldham Street started as a chip shop, but they were also selling booze in the back. But because they didn't have a, a license, they used, used to serve it in teapots. So you go in and collect it. So special brew, you know? <laughs> so that, that was pretty much that. But that... that um, became such a creative haven that should be celebrated really and I think there's a lot that I hope to come from the book but that we start putting emphasis on these institutions especially when as like the council or whatever trying to shut down night and day it's more important than ever that we recognize we aren't just the hacienda we have place like the night and day because if it wasn't the night and day we wouldn't have badly drawn boy we wouldn't have elbow I am clue there's like the, the amount of stuff that came through there and, and that's just the musicians we have the actors and writers and stuff it's just a, a wonderful space and it just shows that how how important they are in the city. And I didn't want to get on my soapbox and say, we're more than the black and yellow, we're more than the B. But you know, I, I just wanted to try and show a different side of, of Manchester. And especially the Manchester that I knew, because Hacienda closed like the month I finished high school. And whilst I snuck in underage, I didn't get into the Hacienda because the bouncers were a bit of knobheads. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you mind if I read out a little bit um, about Please the night do. day? Um, I loved this anecdote because I remember as a teenager, I always thought all of the women working behind the bar were really cool, but I didn't realize they were also really tough. Um, it wasn't all fun and games. Night and day and many of the bars and nightclubs across Manchester were targets for gangs to rush their way inside to steal whatever they could get their hands on. Um, so this is a quote from Tash Wilcox. It was a New Year's Eve and we found out they were going to rush the door. The doorman came over and said, what I want you to do is get all of the punters behind that velvet curtain and turn the front lights on, but not the back lights. Let them just dance, turn the music up as loud as you can. They're circling, they're gonna rush in any second. Then get all of the girls, and I mean this, we were all women, Get them behind the bar, get as many beer bottles as you can near you, but stay behind that bar because they're going to rush the door and when they do, you come up and throw as many bottles as physically possible. <laughs> so they rushed the door and we popped up when he shouted go and we're just lobbing bottles. The bouncer had a chair like a lion tamer pushing them back out of the door with us throwing bottles at the gangsters and they went away. I think they just wondered, what the hell's going on? None of the punters even knew what had happened. They had no idea. Then we turned the light back off, removed the curtain, and just carried on for the evening. <laughs> um, another creator myth you dispel in the book is about Manchester's most talented musicians being all white men. Um, you even set the reader a challenge, which I'm now gonna set the audience. Um, you have until the end of our discussion to do this. Um, no Googling, please. I'm, I'm watching you all. Don't get those phones out. Can you name a number one single to come from a Mancunian artist who wasn't white or male? Um, can you tell us about the overlooked non-white, non-male icons of Manchester's musical scene? Yeah, I mean, the, the stories are 
in the in the book, obviously. But I, I grew up in Levenshulman and Longside, and my sort of knowledge of music was beyond uh, just the the indie scene. I was a huge Oasis fan at the time, as I think the majority of the, the city was. But I was so much into drum and bass that was coming out of the city, the reggae artists, and we just seemed to because Oasis were the most famous band to ever come from the city that becomes the brand umbrella and anything that doesn't look like Oasis or make music like Oasis, you know, by default, isn't Mancunian music. And I find that disgusting, really. And I think that one of the big pities that we didn't celebrate the musicians at the time, like one of the reggae artists, Sylvia Teller, is that that influence, because if you, you, you need people to knock down doors before you, I think, uh, or, or show that it's possible. So if you're a young uh, person who wants to be a reggae artist going up in Manchester in 2002, 2003, and you don't see anybody that's done it before you, and this is before the internet as well. Like you're thinking, well, what's the point? I'm a Mancunian. I don't play guitar. I don't like like, like sing like that. So the Sylvia Teller story in, in particular it was amazing because Sylvia is a, is a reggae artist. She started as a backing singer for Boney M, but she's uh, an amazing reggae musician in her own right. She's like huge in Jamaica. She sells out when she plays in Russia. She's big in Africa whenever she goes over there. But she can walk down Market Street and nobody knows that we've got one of the biggest reggae stars in the world, like lovers rock stars. And it's just, how can that be possible? When, when this country, when this uh, city that celebrates, celebrates diversity and stuff, like how, how much do we really celebrate it? Like why, why is Sylvia Teller not in the, um, in, the, in the Manchester canon when we're, talking, when we're talking about Manchester music? It doesn't, and we always push forward this, this brand. And that's not to, I was very, I wasn't nervous, but I was cautious not to sort of feel like I was, slagging off anybody who does fit the indie music because I'm, I'm a huge fan of that but you had people like you know like uh, Tundi Babalola who is a huge drum bass um, musician in his own right but he's a producer uh, he's produced for the likes of Lily Allen Shakira Tom Jones he's just got a Broadway musical signed off that's going to be later on this year his name is never ever mentioned on on, on anything and, I, and I, I spoke to Tundi again a couple of weeks ago when he read the book um and he was saying, like, he doesn't really care about, like, the recognition. He said, like, people within drum and bass or jungle or who go to the warehouse project now, he sees it like he already laid down the stones. Like, he wasn't in it for the, for the credit. Mm. And in some ways, the more I started unpacking these sort of stories about how we don't celebrate these people um, within, the city's, within the city's music scene, I was like, well, you're not fighting about it, but I want to because I was a huge fan of your music and I think everybody else deserves to be, able to, to be aware of it. Yeah, no, I'm ashamed to say um, it was like the first time I'd heard of some of those people. Um, so one aspect of the book I found interesting was um, your own experiences through friends and people you knew of um, Gunchester. I guess I was under the impression long after the fact that Gun Gunchester was like largely a media fabrication or just heavy-handed exaggeration. But actually in your book, it did sound more substantial than I thought it had been. Um, what was it like? Um, yeah, were you in, you were in Levenshulme, weren't you, at the time? Yeah, so well, well, where I grew up in Levenshulme was uh, it's pretty much the border of Levenshulme, Longsight and Gorton. Mm. So I lived there. Um, more substantial, it was normal. Do you know, I, I, mm. I, and I think whenever any of us are growing up in any sort of fishbowl that we live in, we, you know, we don't get to see what it's like. I know you're from Hale, and I, you know, that was a that was, that was I'm so sorry, guys. I was like, that was like Disneyland for me, mate. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, so, so you don't like think that when you you're seeing friends that are either being arrested for drug dealing or you're seeing like friends being who are taking their own life because they're drug addicts or getting involved in the gang culture. Because you've got no comparison, you're like this is the normal way that people live. So it, it, it didn't feel anything uh, anything other than that. But it's only like years later when I was writing the book, and I was like, shit, that's quite traumatic. <laughs> that's quite a traumatic incidents. 
But yeah, um, it was dangerous. It was violent, but it just felt like uh, every day. But the the sensationalism came from a lot of the media because it's just gun gunchesters, gangsters, and the, the shooting people. But the the truth is, these are fifteen, fourteen. I mean, I, I I've seen a twelve year old with a gun when I when, when no a long time ago. Mm. That's more than just like gangsters. That's a societal problem, and it's no. And that's the question that I'm. And I get I'm a soapbox during that part because it's a question that's never asked. We always look at all right. Well, we'll send them away. And the, and then arrest them, or you know, worse, they'll get killed by the by, by their own like choice of lifestyle. But it's cyclical. We've had like gang problems in Manchester for decades upon decades, or 80s, 90s, noughties, 10s. Nowadays, in the 20s, we've got uh, gangsters uh, within Manchester city centre that are the grandsons of the people that were the main gang leaders. When, when I was a kid, the problem doesn't go away, and that's because the people in power don't want to ask the serious questions about. Why, why is it happening? They just want to quick fix, kick them off the street. All right, sort it for two, three years. And then all of, a good, all of a sudden it comes up because poverty breeds crime. And until Manchester, as amazing as it is, with this regeneration project, I drive around Lemon's Room alongside Gorton still now. It looks exactly the same and the same problems exist. So yes, it's great and safe in the city centre, but nothing's changed outside of it. Um, I feel like from friends you've written books, um I feel like parts of their books always get cut. Was there anything that got cut that you wish had stayed in? Sorry, I'm going to get you in trouble with your publishing house now. No, you're not. Um, not really, no. They, they, they were, they were for, for it being my first book, I was a bit nervous when I sent that draft over to them and I thought like, oh, this is going to get chopped to shit here, you know? And then um, they just, not, there was like little tweaks and stuff like that. I, I didn't realise how long the the proofreading and the edits going back and forth took, but there, there, there was very little sort of change. There was changes from the initial uh, premise that I broke down the chapters and we were looking at things like um, regeneration and I had this idea to do a chapter on the buildings and I thought, that's dull. I wanted to, like, you know what I mean? It's like, it, I, don't, I wanted the book to move at a pace. I, want, I basically wanted the, the reader to sit down and because we've got all these sort of different talking heads, I want it to be a documentary in book form. I want it to be like, you're sat down with people around the table having a few beers and we're all sort of sharing our stories about growing up and that. So, so I thought, like, I didn't know anyone who went, went around looking, oh, that building was nice. You know, it just didn't, <laughs> it just didn't happen. Um, so I love the beginning because it starts with him. Um, whenever he's got a hangover, he goes for a <laughs> hike. Um, to what extent is the story of Manchester a story of piss-ups? Um, but my my story, or that, that, I mean, my story is a lot of piss ups and drug ups and all sorts of fuck ups. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a lot. Um, I don't know if it's just a story about piss ups. I, th I think I think there seems to be um, a newfound love of the local pub. That seems to be a lot more people are getting back into that culture. But for me, the for for the drinking culture at the time. They were m more than just going getting levered down your local. These were community centres. I think Anne, I think Anne touched on it when she was talking about the, um, the her photos earlier on. It's like where you made friendships and stuff. Okay, you might have got into some scraps and stuff. Where it's where ideas were made. We look at the night and day. Okay, all them artists and all them ba bands might have got levered, but there was a camaraderie struck there because they'd found like-minded people. Now, when you haven't got these sort of, and you can extend this to community centres because God, God knows we're losing them in the city centre. When you when you or, or music venues, when you lose this place for people with common ideas to get together, you lose the culture. So you know the drinking culture. Yes, people got drunk a lot, but out of that. A hell of a lot more than a hangover. 
Um, what was your favorite part of writing this book? It changes all the time, to be honest. Um, finishing it. <laughs> no, um, I don't, the hardest part, funny enough, a big Manchester United fan was actually writing about the football, uh, really. Because, I mean, I, I'm jumping ahead, but the, the favorite, my favorite part was, I'd probably say the music stuff because it felt nice to sort of try and put bands that should have been put on a pedestal uh, in the past, try and give them some sort of um, spotlight. That was, that, that was really important to me. The gang stuff was really important. It was strange though, because it's, I don't know how many people in the room have tried to write biographies or look back in their, in their past, because it was like meeting an old friend, because you, cause you change so much over the years. And I think it's only when you sit down and sort of try and analyze what you've gone through and certain things that have stuck out. And I was like, man, I miss that dude, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where did that time go? So I've just, just, it really, really felt like being reacquainted with a younger version of me, which brought a pressure in itself, but also being reacquainted with a, a Manchester City centre that I felt, or Manchester that I felt more affinity with than, than, than I do nowadays. Sounds fun. Kind of want to write a biography now. Go for it. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask, David to choose his favorite part of the book to read an extract from and b b but before we do that I've got to make a second confession which is you set that challenge in the book but I actually couldn't find the bit where you answered it so let's take answers and then let's hear <laughs> what the answer is um did anyone come up with the answer to the, the challenge um that David set no no nobody oh hang on yep St. Winifred's Choir, what year was that? Oh, that's, that's the last year I was born. Oh, okay. Um, now as penance, David's going to read his favourite book. Penance, thank you. Favourite bit of the book. <laughs> and then um, maybe we'll do a little Q&A, because I love a Q&A. Um, okay, this is from the, the conclusion. If there is a success within these pages, it is that I have had the opportunity to share stories seldom told. The contributor's input was as much a discovery for me as I hope it has been for you. Collected, I believe that it has unintentionally challenged Manchester's greatest myth. Manchester is not a melting pot. Mancunians are not a homogenized people. The people and place do not blend into one thing. Manchester is not soup. We don't talk with one tongue. We don't sing the same songs. Our colors and creeds change like door numbers on a street. The actions of one person don't tell all our tales. We are panhandlers stopping cars for change under the Mancunian way. Developers truffling out a cheap property. Parents mourning the loss of their child to mindless violence. Imams ringing out the morning prayers at mosque. Families heading to Shabbat in Cheatham Hill. Greengrocers stacking yams on Hyde Road. Newly arrived migrants seeking refuge. We are addicts selling stolen gear from the supermarket at the local pub. Old timers propping up the bars. Clubbers queuing in lines for lines and troubled teens facing difficult decisions. We are parades that celebrate our sexuality. We are protesters fighting for acceptance. We are media types living in multi-million pound apartments, elderly people being moved out of their homes in the name of progression. 
We are dynamic corporation leaders in glass skyscrapers where homeless people see their reflection in the streets outside. We are hipster restaurateurs culturally appropriating ethnic food and emerging artists trying to carve a career whilst the civic nostalgia shackles them to the past. There are as many obstacles as there are opportunities, a contrast between conflict and community. The whole may be greater than the parts, but it's exactly because the parts are distinctly different that makes this place what it is. Many worlds coexisting within a 44.6 square mile radius. We are the walking stories that make up a complex and compelling canvas. It is only when we look at the warts as well as its wonder can we solve the underlying problems overlooked as we celebrate our success. We are a multitude, people put together with the consideration of a four-year-old with a paintbrush. We are colorful, dull, irregular, sharp, dangerous, ill-fitting pieces that are on the face of it, shouldn't be placed alongside each other, but somehow manage to accompany one another as part of a larger pattern. To focus on a few is to skew the view, to miss the mechanics, to not take in the patchwork of the tapestry. We don't do things differently here. We each live differently here. Manchester is a mosaic. Okay, guys. Um, I want to give David a huge round of applause and then shall we all hit Thank the bar? Thank you. Thanks.